I love hats. If you ever see me, more than likely I'm wearing a hat. And not only because my hair started thinning when I was 25, not just because of that, it's because I've always thought hats were cool. And I'm in good company here because Paul Wasserman and Joe Rinkiewicz of Henry the Hatter, they love hats too. Not only because they think they're cool, for Paul and Joe, hats are a 127-year tradition. Welcome to In Good Company. We all wear so many hats to become an entrepreneur in Detroit and Southeast Michigan. Well, if you're gonna wear all those hats, you may as well wear some cool ones from the oldest hat retailer in the United States, right here in Detroit, Henry the Hatter. This is In Good Company, and I'm Shannon Casey. I'm sitting down with Paul Wasserman and Joe Rinkiewicz of Henry the Hatter. When I first sat down with them, we started talking retail. I worked in retail for many years at Hudson's, then Jacobson's, and my dad owned a retail shop in the 70s on Woodward Avenue called the Playboy Mod Boutique. Paul told me my dad was actually one of his wholesale hat customers. And I always enjoyed spending time with him. He was just uh, very, very, very outgoing, effervescent, a lot of fun, and he just provided some good insights for me. But I wanted to hear about Paul's dad, his background, and how he came to own Henry the Hatter. My father was born in Brooklyn, as was my mother. He graduated high school at 16, graduated college at 20, and was on his way to medical school in New York when his uncle, his father's brother, who owned a hat factory in Allentown, Pennsylvania, let my dad know that there was a store on the Upper East Side in Manhattan that owed him a lot of money, and would he like to take it over with the opportunity to pay the debt to him and own the store free and clear? And he did, and that was the end of his medical career, which was a shame because nobody could read his writing. He'd have been a great doctor. <laughs> Paul's dad's name was Seymour Wasserman, but everyone called him Cy. And later, at the hat shop, they affectionately called him the old man. But the young Cy came to Detroit to look at a hat business called Henry the Hatter. Henry the Hatter was the idea of Henry Komrowska. In Henry the Hatter world, he would be considered Henry I. The business was continued by Gustav Newman who initially started as a stock and delivery boy in 1904. But by the late 1940s, Newman was ready to retire. Gustav was Henry II. When Cy got word of it, he came from New York to find out if there was opportunity in the hat business in Detroit. And my dad took the train from Grand Central Station to Michigan Central Station on Michigan Avenue to have a look at this business that was for sale. And he got in a cab, and at that time there were two stores. And my dad told me the story that he didn't offer up an address. He just told the cab driver, take me to Henry the Hatter, just to get a reaction. The cab driver said, which one? So my dad thought that was a good sign. And by the end of the meeting, he had bought the store on the spot and then had to go home to Brooklyn to tell my mom 
exactly what he had done. So starts the reign of Henry III, Cy Wasserman, in 1948. Cy convinced his wife to move the family from Brooklyn to Detroit. He was a great salesman. And Paul was just a kid at the time. And Cy made a great decision because hats were a huge deal. Well, in the 50s, everybody wore a hat. The store on Broadway was so congested with foot traffic that there was a full-time policeman on the corner to make sure nobody got hit by cars. Uh, People took more public transportation in those days. Uh, There were no attached garages, there were no heated parking decks, and there was a greater need to be out in the elements. People waited for buses, people waited for streetcars when they still had streetcars, and hats became a necessity. If you were automotive, you had a uniform, and that included a hat, and there was a president of Chrysler, I think his last name might have been Keeler, might not have been, but he would not approve a car to go into production unless he could get into that car with his hat on and not getting the hat knocked off. And in addition to making and selling hats... In our heyday, we cleaned 40,000 hats a year for companies nationwide. Hat business in Detroit was booming. And Paul grew up in the business. Then he worked at Hudson's, then became a mailman long enough to save money to go to Europe for six months. He says he had a blast. When he got back home penniless, he started getting serious about the family hat business eventually taken over to become Henry IV in 1971. Paul knows Detroit, and he knows hats, and he has a unique perspective of looking at the city by its hat styles throughout the years. In the 60s, uh, cars became more aerodynamic. Uh, There started to be heated garages. People were growing their hair longer. JFK became inaugurated as the youngest president and had a beautiful head of hair. Uh, Mod clothing came in and people all of a sudden, well, you know, maybe I don't want to wear a hat. Uh, And they didn't. And in the early to mid 60s with uh, Cassius Clay before he was Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X and, you know, the the start of, uh, you know, the political unrest that would roll into the late 60s. The very, very small brims came in fashion, and they they have come back, the stingy brims. And you can see pictures from the year. I can date a photo without knowing the year just by looking at the type of hat, the type of brims, and all that sort of thing. And then when people started growing their hair in in the hippie protest era of the mid to late 60s, Everybody had an afro. Me, I did the best I could with what I've got. And I, I had the equivalent of. And everybody's head size grew by four sizes. And uh, it was interesting that there was uh, the Superfly era with the maxi coats and the glass heels and the wide brims and, uh, you know, whatever illicit drug was going on at that time. And believe me, there was plenty of it. Uh, and... Uh, When it got to the point of the mid-70s, there became a Western fad, and everybody wanted a cowboy hat. In retail, you can make a fortune on a fad, or you can lose your, I'm not going to say it, but you get it. Fads are fleeting. 
and Henry the Hatter got into a little jam with these cowboy hats. And, you know, on Monday, everybody wanted one. On Tuesday, nobody wanted one. We went to sleep one night, and all was well. And the next day, we had all these cowboy hats that nobody wanted. And even with a factory, there's nothing you can do to change it into something else. It is what it is. Uh, as close as we ever came to going out of business was then we had inventory up to our neck of things that were unsaleable. We had $70 in the bank and a stack of bills to pay. And my father and I looked at each other and absolutely didn't know what we were going to do. And because of our longstanding history, we were upfront with our creditors. Everybody was willing to work with us. We eventually worked through it and got rid of the hats. And here we are today. So Henry the Hatter made it through the cowboy hat crisis of the 1970s. But as we know, Detroit had many more trying times to come. The 80s was the crack era. And this was the period Joe Rinkiewicz started his career in the hat business. I started in 1985. And, uh, one, you know, in Detroit, uh, that was uh, Young Boys Incorporated, uh, different gangs like that running the city. Uh, one, one of my first... One of my first observations was, uh, as Paul mentioned earlier, uh, you don't ask where the money comes from. Uh, three young guys come in the store, uh, dressed you know, head to toe beautifully, uh, carrying a Louis Vuitton briefcase. Uh, said, where's the Borsalino hats? I showed them the Borsalino hats. At that time, they were probably $325. Uh, I'll take the black one and get my boys whatever they want. Opens up the Louis Vuitton briefcase, throws $1,000 in cash on the desk. So see you later. Uh, that blew me away. I, I thought I was in the wrong business at the time, you know, starting out as a stock boy or, or a hat salesman. In all that Henry the Hatter had endured through the years, and that's 127 years, going back to the turn of the century, I'm talking about the 1900s, the time of the Purple Gang, the 1943 and the 1967 riots, the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history in 2013, and all the major events in Detroit that the whole world talked about. It's ironic that Detroit's comeback was the time when Henry the Hatter faced its most harrowing moment. In 2017, Paul got a letter from his landlord. We're not renewing your lease. We're not offering renewal at any price whatsoever. You have 120 days to leave, which will be the end of August, and don't be here September 1st. And that was that. Entrepreneurs face moments where circumstances demand quick, definitive decisions. Truth be told, I never panicked. I, was, I knew I was going to make a decision. I was going to do something. Initially, when I went back and forth with Joe, the easiest thing would have been to close up the Detroit store for me to ride off into the sunset and to sell Joe the existing store in Southfield. Joe talked it over with his family and thought that if he was going to buy Henry the Hatter at all, there needed to be a store in Detroit. But Henry the Hatter, moving from the location on Broadway Avenue, where the classic neon sign blinked on and off whenever it rained too hard over all those years, meant something. Not just to Paul and Joe and all the employees, but it meant something to Detroit. 
when we finally made the announcement on July 1st, we had such a public outcry. It was as if something was being taken from the people. I wasn't losing a location. These people who were Detroiters and had shopped with their fathers, uncles, grandfathers, they had something being taken away from them. They were irate. On the day the news broke, it was like, take a number in the supermarket to buy a deli meat, and I gave out probably 12 interviews. We were on front page of both papers. Every station uh, picked us up on television. Every radio station picked us up, and it, it just sent such shockwaves through the city that it, it just brought me to my knees. Hmm. It was gratifying. It was humbling, and in a very, very, very good way, it was like being able to be a guest at your own funeral to find out what people really think, not so much of me, but of what I've been doing with my life, of Henry the Hatter. And I, yeah, I'll never forget that. Hmm. And again, we nev never panicked, never got overwhelmed, knew we were going to do something because we were just going to be positive about it. Has that always been a part of your personality or how yes. you— has it? Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't be deterred very easily. That type of doggedness pays off. One thing Detroit has an abundance of is buildings with character, especially in Eastern Market. So the place we're in now in the market is one of the first places I stumbled on, and it was occupied by a pet supply store. And the, the finished store, should anybody have the desire to come in and see it, is exactly what I envisioned the first time I saw the store. We retrofitted the showcases that we had in the store. We knew somebody that could disassemble them, move them, and assemble them. The new store is configured with two rises in the floor and a doorway on the opposite side. The showcases did not have to be altered by an inch and retrofit as if they were built for that space. We also took the neon sign that had been there for 65 years, which was a, a super identifier of Henry the Hatter, very iconic sign, and we relocated that to the new space. Joe wanted to share a little bit more about that sign. At the location on Broadway, um, we always had a problem. If it was going to rain within 12 hours, it was real humid outside, or if it, it had just got done raining, it took a couple of days for the sign to dry out. There would be sections of the sign that wouldn't light up. And it was just, that, that was the, the story of the sign. We sent it to the doctor. We get it moved over to the new place. And Paul and I were there on evening. Uh, the electricians were putting it up, but they didn't light it. Uh, they said there was no power going up to the box. So I called the electrician. I says, did you put the power out there? He says, yep. They just have to run the wire out to the front. So the guys got back in the truck, got it back up on the hoist. And I says, uh, you aren't leaving until this thing's lit up. He says, what do you mean? I says, well, there's power up there. I'll go set the circuit breaker. They wired it up. It lit up beautifully, just lit up the whole street. I snapped a couple of pictures. I says, okay, you guys can go home. A week later, as we're getting, putting stuff in the store, getting ready to open, we go and hit the switch and only half the lights lit. I said, well, that's, that's the spirit of that sign. That's the spirit of our old store coming with us to this new place. We call the electricians the next day. Whatever wire was bad, they fixed, and it's been lit ever since. So we know that the spirit that 65 years in that one building came with us into this new one. 
That's beautiful. Just give you a one last wink. Oh yeah. To let yeah. you know, hey, I'm it's here. It's home. It's home. Yeah. 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 It started with the original Henry Kambrowska, then Gustav Newman, and Cy Wasserman, and then his son, Paul Wasserman, and finally Joe Rinkewicz, co-owner and now Henry V. All the Henry the Hatters shared their lessons with the next throughout 127 years. I asked Joe what he learned from Paul. Well, the patience, patience with people that are working for you and, and not not basically working for you working as a family that's one of the biggest things in Henry the Hatter it's, it's a family I wouldn't have been here for 35 years if I didn't feel treated that way I'm a hat person I watched my dad wear big hats around Detroit when I was young and I always wore hats growing up and until this day hats provide a unique distinction an individuality of style Fedoras, derbies, Panama hats, short brim, wide brim, flat caps. I wear newsboys all the time. And Henry the Hatter sells them all. Paul Wasserman shares one hat. No matter if you're a hat person or not, every Detroiter is sure to have in the collection. We still sell Detroit Tiger caps, and that old English D transcends the baseball team. As god-awful as they are, people still want that hat because it means something more than the baseball team. Mm. It means I'm a Detroiter, and I'm showing you that this is where I'm from, this is where my heart is. This episode was produced and mixed by Alex Trajano. And I'm your host, Shannon Casey. Original music by Sam Bobian and Andrew Bishop. In Good Code Detroit was developed by the New Economy Initiative with support from the Knight Foundation. Please go to ingoodcodedetroit.com to hear more about the Henry the Hatter story in film and in print and connect with the resources and practical tools to help you manage all those hats you have to wear. Make sure you subscribe to In Good Co. Detroit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a story. Thanks for listening.